Welcome to the 246th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Welcome and thanks for listening. Might sound a little funny, I'm actually in the office studio, so our... Um, might have a little bit of an echo in here. I hope it's not too awful bad, but it's what you get because um, I am the lone gun for podcast production, editing, and everything. So, got to do it while you can. So, Leadville 50 mile Silver Rush race in Leadville, Colorado is still on July 8th. This next weekend is the marathon in Leadville, which is known as the toughest marathon in the United States because of the elevation, and they've actually had to alter the course because the snow is still high up at Mosquito Pass. So um, I'm hoping that the course is um, going to be okay for July, but it'll be what it is, and we'll all get to running, so that'll be great. Still pulling the tire, uh, about 0.4 miles, um, try to get that almost every morning now doing my mile on the treadmill at 15% grade. Um, now, in addition to my um, cornhole bean bags and my vest, my running vest, I'm adding mangoes because our mango tree, it's not our favorite mango tree, but there is a mango tree that's available to us, has some mangoes on it, so I'm um, picking up about five mangoes. They're not very big ones. Um, at about mile three on my six mile run. So that's adding a little weight to the pack. So it's all good training, um, you know, otherwise everything's a go. So we're gonna keep up keeping up. We do a balance slash mobility slash strength course in the office on Mondays. So we've been doing a lot of quad work, um, practicing getting off the ground, uh, wall sits and so forth, which are also good for um, it's also good lead tra Leadville training or any other kind of training, so that's all good. We've been uh, started doing a progression, so for people that can't get off the ground without using their hands, how do you progress and work your way down? So that's actually been quite fun. Um, this week I want to talk about toluene. Um, it's kind of like creatine um, that is all the rage. Toluene is in, um, most notably, uh, the monster drinks, the energy drinks, the eight-hour energy drinks, and all those other things that are high sugar, and they have about a gram of toluene in them. And uh, it is marketed and hyped to the point where they call it almost an essential amino acid. So it's not an essential amino acid. It's almost an essential amino acid per the marketers, but it's not really almost, it just isn't. Um, but but toluene is actually derived from cysteine, which is a, a um, is an essential amino acid, so that's how they kind of come up with that. It has to be synthesized, and it is synthesized um, through um, pathways that ultimately use methionine and um, homocysteine, and you've heard those, um, those chemicals, I'm sure, uh, into essentially toluene. Car true carnivores don't make toluene, so cats need toluene. Um, and in cats, they can get a cardiomyopathy and blindness if they don't have toluene. And 
from what we know about cats and cat food, um, commercial cat food is often heated and can actually destroy the toluene, and that's why some cats can get deficient certain um, pedigrees of cats or certain, you know, have uh, more of a need than others or more prone to cardiomyopathies. So they probably need a little bit more toluene. Toluene is this, um, we as humans make toluene. Um, so if you're an omnivore, um, which we are, we don't have giant canine teeth, um, we can make carnivore from cysteine, which is an essential amino acid that we eat, um, which is available from a plant-based diet. But the big hubbub about uh, toluene is that a study came out, and as studies do come out and uh, want to attract attention, especially from people selling toluene, is that they showed that, um, or, they, or they touted the, the study as toluene is a life extension, so it's a longevity amino acid and might hold the key to improving longevity. Sounds like a great thing. What could possibly go wrong? Just go out and have a monster energy drink and you'll live forever. Um, and how they came to this conclusion was they looked at um, a couple different ways. They looked at monkeys, uh, five-year-old monkeys versus 15-year-old monkeys, and noticed that the toluene decreased in their bloodstream about 85%. So the first thing that comes up is, you know, the question is how you're measuring things. Are you measuring plasma levels, blood levels? Does that correspond to what's actually in muscle and liver? Um, and all of that is somewhat unknown. Uh, we do know that plasma toluene and uh, blood toluene levels vary quite differently. And they vary according to the time of the day and um, depending on what people eat. So you can imagine that uh, the numbers are kind of all over the place. But they saw um, a decrease in monkeys as they got older. And then they looked at mice and fed toluene. Uh, they were toluene deficient versus mice given toluene. And they noticed an increased lifespan, 12% for girl mice, female mice, and 10% for male mice. Um, they also notice an increase in muscle endurance in male mice and a decrease in depression and anxiety in female mice. I'm not sure how they, if that was a questionnaire, uh, or the mice just seemed a little less jitty. I'm not sure about how that goes. But then they extrapolated. Um, so obviously mice don't live forever, or they don't even live near as long as humans. It turned out that the mice live four months longer. And then they extrapolated that to humans, saying that, well, humans could live eight years longer if they had more toluene. And there have been some studies out there that have shown that um, older people living in a nursing home may have decreased toluene levels. And if you um, are being kept alive by tube feedings and there's not enough toluene in it, you could have lower levels. Again, I'm gonna go back to the cat food example. Uh, depending on what you eat, um, you may not be given the essential amino acids to be able to make toluene. And I don't think anybody would argue as we get older, our ability to make some of these enzymes, uh, our amino acids go down. But, you know, is that a chicken or an egg process? So is it because of declining health in general? 
that people are losing their ability to synthesize toluene? Is it because people's diets as they in dietary preferences as they get older uh, change, and so they um, are more likely to not get enough essential amino acids from various sources or a wide enough variety of sources to make toluene? And does it really, truly make a difference? Um, and you know, it's kind of funny because if you look at people that are usually the consumers of energy drinks, you don't really think of those as the people that are going to live the longest. But nevertheless, maybe that, you know, um, maybe all that sugar and caffeine and toluene is enough to keep them going. Who knows? Well, what's my problem with this? It's like, Doc, why don't you just take some toluene, you know? I mean, if it might help a little bit, why not do it? Uh, what can it hurt? And that's the exact question. So is there a downside to taking toluene? Um, the people that are carnivore-based or meat-based promoting uh, would point the finger at uh, us plant-based people that, you know, we're certainly going to be toluene deficient because toluene comes from animals. And if you're not eating any animals, you're not going to get any toluene. But humans can make toluene, so that shouldn't be the problem. But they'll say, well, you can't make enough as you get older. So if you really want to do well as you get older, you should probably start eating meat again. So the backside of that is methionine and cysteine, which are the precursors of toluene. We know that methionine in particular has cancer-promoting DNA-damaging effects done in excess. So one of the things that may be um, part of why plant-based people do better is because they actually have less of these sulfur-containing amino acids that become toxic. So if you look at what, what a plant-based person eats um, versus what an animal uh, or carnivore or omnivore type person eats, we kind of dribble things in. I've said it over and over in the podcast. We dribble in nutrients from a variety of sources. Um, you may have some oatmeal, you may have some fruit, you may have some tofu, um, a variety of different fruits, you may have a variety of different vegetables where people that uh, tend to eat more of a meat diet may only have one vegetable. So we might ultimately eat, um, you know, 16 different things in a day that dribble in various nutrients. And so we get all of the essential amino acids that we need but not excessive amounts, and we don't get excessive amounts of the ones that are toxic, such as methionine and cysteine. So um, methionine actually has been shown to inhibit cancer, uh, I'm sorry, um, methionine enhances um, cancer cell growth, uh, enhance, and it can also enhance the um, benefits of chemotherapeutic drugs. It's been shown to a methionine decrease diet, and the diet is shown to decrease fat production, increase insulin sensitivity, decrease oxidative stress, um, and actually extends life in rats. So the same rats, or I guess the mice that live longer with toluene, die quicker if, if they're rats and they're given methionine. Um, by a, the tune of about a 40% reduction in methionine resulted in an increased survival of the rats. It also has some cardioprotective effects on uh, different hormones, decreasing cancer incidence overall. So a low methionine diet is associated with the protection um, against these things. 
And they've actually worked out the mechanism on how a low methionine diet protects people from cancer. One of, it, one of them is um, a glutathione production. One is um, when it comes to promoting cell proliferation and DNA changes. It seems as though that cancer cells are much more sensitive to methionine than non-cancer cells. So people on a low methionine diet um, tend to do better. Again, and then it's, there's an enhancement with chemotherapeutic agents. There's also um, an increased production of glutathione that scavengers reactive oxygen species basically decreases um, oxidative stress. When, if you've looked at um, Dr. Esselstyn's book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, part of nitric oxide um, and how it works is it dilates arteries, but one of the things, and, and if you eat greens, you increase the production of nitric oxide. However, if you have greens in a steak, you decrease the production of nitric oxide, mainly because the inflammation and the oxidative stress that a meat in the diet occurs that actually ends up blocking nitric oxide. So again, a diet low in methionine will decrease oxidative stress and is therefore beneficial. There was also some benefit of restricting methionine as people, or I'm sorry, as rats age. So again, you know, what people tolerate as a young person, what rats and mice tolerate as young versus old, also vary in age. And, you know, I'll go back to that garage. You know, once your garage starts to fill up with metabolic waste and cellular debris, we tolerate less insults. So an older person tolerates less metabolic insults than a younger person. Um, you know, eating a McDonald's and fries as a 10-year-old may not cause them any grief. Uh, 50-year-old eat McDonald's and french fries may be what turns them, um, you know, what lights the match that ultimately causes the heart attack or, you know, lights the match that causes inflammation or, or at least terrible indigestion, which it wouldn't occur in a younger person. Same thing happens with some of these um, amino acids in that some of the ways they work differ in young versus older. Um, so some of the DNA damage doesn't seem to occur so much in younger rats as it does in older rats. And so, you know, it comes down to it as we age, what can you get away with? Um, I remember my dad, uh, my dad was a real lover of sweets and my grandmother was a great baker of pies and cakes and so forth, but especially pies. And my dad really liked pies. And often on Saturday, my grandmother would make four different kinds of pies and my dad would have a slice of each. And when he became a diabetic, finally, of course, my grandmother had passed away, um, he gave up eating pie. And he basically justified or consoled himself by saying, I ate enough pie as a young person. I don't need to eat it now. Um, and I think that kind of happens a lot with things. You know, you can get away with a lot as a young person. But as you get older, you got to be a little bit more careful about what you're getting into. But there's been some studies done all the way back into 1959 that uh, on rats, and if they withheld methionine and then they were injected with tumor cells, the tumor didn't grow, but if then they were given a diet uh, higher in methionine, the tumor cells grew much more rapidly. In 1974, there was a study done looking at cell lines and they looked at methionine-restricted growth um, factors 
when looking at breast cancer cell lines, lymphocytic leukemic cell lines, leukemic cell lines, liver tumor cell lines, prostate cell lines, um, and the tumor growth was severely depressed in mediums that methionine was withheld on. So depleting uh, methionine, again, decreased the tumor cell growth. It was found that malignant cells lack methionine synthase um, versus uh, normal cells, so they can't recycle homocysteine, so they're actually like, uh, people say tumors like sugar, well, they like methionine even more, so when people are, uh, the cell lines are put on methionine-restricted diet, they, they tend to wither up and die. So my takeaway on this study before anybody emails me, what about taurine or anybody in the practice, like should we be taking taurine or should we worried about not getting enough meat in our diet? I thought I was deficient in protein. Now I know it's taurine. Um, not so quick. Um, again, I think a lot of this stuff is multifactorial. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Um, I would like to see a study on blue zoners and what their taurine level is. Um, again, perhaps the lower level is very beneficial as we age um, with regard to, to cancer and tumor cell growth. Just like dogs, cats can't make vitamin C. Uh, I'm sorry, they make vitamin C, so they don't have to eat oranges. Um, we make taurine, so we really don't have to eat it. And there's some reason for that. I don't think we know all that yet, but um, I'm pretty sure that we don't have the canine teeth uh, and the need for uh, toyerine that uh, my friend Tony the cat needs. If some of this toyerine talk made you concerned about your cat friend or even your dog friends, um, the biggest source of toyerine uh, is in the fast twitch muscles. So, you know, chicken wings, chicken thighs, legs, and things that move fast. Um, have more toluene. So uh, again, if you wanted to extrapolate it into the uh, I just eat lean uh, chicken breast people, they're probably not getting much in the way of toluene either. But um, you know, for our animals, we try to get them uh, high sources of highly contractile sources of animal muscle, such as heart, um, thigh, and and wing type of thing. I guess people that eat chicken wing gets a lot of toluene as well as a lot of cholesterol and fat. So again, going down the road with my friends, the carnivores, uh, on the Twitter feed, um, people have been posting their calcium scores and saying how healthy they are because their calcium scores are zero because even though their cholesterol is 300, so that they're not at risk for coronary artery disease eating their five steaks a day. And again, we need to cry foul for that because we have to look at the population. Um, it takes a while to grow your coronary artery disease. So when I look at these people eating carnivore in their 30s and 40s, you know, they may stay lean because they're eating relatively low calories, but it's like, call me up again when you're 70 or 80 and let's see how things are going, or perhaps even 50 or 60. But the reality of it is, um, most young people, the reason why people have the big one, so to speak, the big heart attack in the 40s and 50s is because of soft plaque ruptures. So the plaques that are baby plaques, we, you start out with um, foam cells and early, and sometimes even teenage kids, 
um, these abnormalities in the blood vessel wall from inflammation, cholesterol, uh, and so forth. And these abnormalities in the blood vessel wall are nothing more than maybe a little road rash, so to speak. And then they grow over time and cholesterol and inflammatory cells um, start to grow under the endothelium and it pops up like a pimple that um, is tender. And as it grows, the, the cap is actually very soft and the cholesterol crystals can break through that cap and cause a blood clot formation and that's an acute myocardial infarction the big one, so to speak. They want, the only one that a stent will improve someone's longevity. So if you have an ST elevation, a STEMI, uh, acute occlusion of a coronary artery, that's when you need a life-saving stent um, and you need your interventional cardiologist. Other people um, better off changing their diets. Calcium scores don't pick up those plaques because they could be 20% soft plaques the day before they have the big one and it ruptures and they have 100% blockage of the artery. So young people eating their six steaks a day could have a zero calcium score and have an infarct the next day. Um, and you could kind of see how it can happen. You could have a soft plaque and you have all this TMAO generated from all this meat that they're eating, all this inflammation and oxidative stress, and boom, they have their heart attacks. So uh, when someone brags to you that they have a zero calcium score despite eating a terrible diet, um, you know, not so quick. As we age, we tend to have these soft plaques that may become stable and they become calcified. That's what's picked up on a calcium score. So yes, there's vascular disease if you have a positive calcium score. How bad it is or what the prognosis is depends on a whole host of other factors. So yes, it's a good idea if you have a positive calcium score to look at your diet, look at your exercise, look at your inflammation to see how you can improve yourself. But it's not necessarily a reason to run and jump and get a heart catheterization and a stent. So it depends on how you want to deal with things. The internet is full of people throwing doctors under the bus, and we certainly throw a lot of doctors under the bus in, in our office as well because they tend to um, not take time with people and treat people with medication and protocol and not individualize things. And yes, all that is uh, a problem. But when you're having the big one, you need all hands on deck and acute intervention and a stent to save your life. Um, same way with cancer, um, to sit and do nothing and continue to eat a high-fat diet in the presence of cancer, probably not going to do well. Um, so a lot of people don't want traditional medical intervention, but they also don't want to change their diet and lifestyle. A lot of people are very brave about not um, caring. You've got to die of something. I'm going to enjoy my life. I deserve this and that. Um, but when push comes to shove, um, and it's the choice between um, most likely dying or chancing it on, on an interventional therapy of sorts, they're going to choose the interventional therapy, which may make them patients for a long time. So, you know, what we always tell people is you don't necessarily get to choose how you're going to die or how long it's going to take. Um, there can be um, a lot of interventions between you and um, that keeps you from doing the great things that you want to do. So 
healthy lifestyle, longevity, um, maybe even not longevity, but a healthy, a long health span, if that's what you're interested in, uh, most likely you're gonna have to uh, look at your lifestyle, which includes nutrition and exercise. A simple thing, um, which is not so much like a, a soft plaque, is a blister. Um, if you're working in the yard or you're going on a, you're new to running or walking and, or you're on a 100 mile hot run uh, or maybe even a 20 mile run or maybe you're just going on vacation and you're walking in shoes that you usually don't walk in and you get a blister, the first thing that happens is the, you get a puffiness uh, and it's become sore. There's a fluid filled under the skin, under the dermal layer and then it pops and it, and it hurts. Um, this is the time of year, especially in Florida, when everything changes with regards to blisters and chafing. Um, chafing, uh, a lot of times people get under their arms, legs, um, jog bra lines, uh, anything that, um, it's, it's pretty much a lot, the etiology is like a blister, um, which is heat, moisture, and friction. So if something's moving back and forth, if a running belt is moving back and forth on your waist, waist or a heart, uh, chest strap is moving back and forth underneath a jog bar or just the jog bra is bouncing up and down a little bit or on your shoulders, you can come in and have some nasty chafing. Um, people with uh, new, new shoes or the wrong shoes, specifically the wrong socks going out can get uh, some nasty blisters that derail their exercise um, um, so everything's going great and they get a blister and then you know they stop and that's the end and it's six months later and of course I can't go out because it's too hot and you know so there's a big downfall so how do you prevent these things um, again friction heat and moisture if you're someplace now um, in the south where it's 90 to 100 degrees we're in the heat a lot of good benefits from the heat as far as a cellular level and um, ultimately decreasing inflammation. So it's not to be avoided, but it needs to be, um, you meet your exposure needs to be with caution, just like you're going to not want to get fried with sun. Um, you don't want to have a heat stroke. You want to have your hydration up, but uh, when it comes to blisters and chafing, um, you want to pick garments that are um, less likely to cause you a problem. So, um, you know, I can, three miles is one thing, 10 miles is another, 20 miles is another thing, but um, keeping it dry as possible and then using some sort of um, lubricant uh, or skin protection. So the best thing that's ever been invented is diaper rash protection, right? Because diaper rash is a, the ultimate form of chafing from friction and moisture. So the Desitins, Balmex, um, Burt's Bees Zinc Oxide are really good um, base thing, base creams to put on in areas that you chafe. Um, if you don't want the white um, sticky layer, uh, good old Vaseline can work. Um, there's a product called Aquaphor can work. Um, there's a specific running um, anti-chafing called um, Body Glide, Squirrel Nut Butter. Um, these are all really, really good um, things to put on in areas before you go out and get chafed. So under your arm, along your, your uh, jog bra line or chest strap line, 
um, or on your feet under your socks. Uh, cotton socks are not your friend in the heat. Um, socks that your shoe eats are not your friend. Um, if, if it starts to happen, then you need to address it sooner or later because once you get the blister, it's kind of too late. Good fitting shoes, um, so that uh, running shoes or good walking shoes should be about a size, size and a half bigger than a dress shoe. It's kind of funny because probably most dress shoes should be bigger than as well, but we tend to cram our feet into good looking shoes and they, we don't want them to slip. So um, I'll leave that as that. I'm currently wearing Luna sandals because of it, just to let my feet um, be my feet and spread out. But um, a, good, a good running shoe that fits with a wide toe box um, is, is certainly good to prevent blisters about a size, size and a half. Tying your shoes correctly, so putting your foot in your shoe and bringing your heel all the way to the back and snugging it up. There's also an extra little eye in the running shoes. It's really up high. Most people ignore it. It's not there. It's not the, usually the laces aren't through it when you get your, your shoes. You can use that um, extra little eyelet to snug in your shoes and snug in your heel, especially if your heel's a little narrow, more narrow than the front of your foot. So you can snug things down so you don't have the friction of the shoe running up and down, rubbing up and down your, um, on your foot. Even sandals in the summertime, uh, you know, if you have a between the toe or around the big toe, uh, or the way the sandals cross your feet, uh, a little of the body glide or a, a little lubricant goes a long way to protect your feet, especially until things are broken in. So. Just an FYI for summertime heat protection. So it's not an excuse not to go out. If you do get a blister, pop it and then, but don't pull the skin off, let it kind of heal down, treat it with an antibiotic um, or, a, or you, know, you can do a Manuka honey or some other um, just antiseptic type of not drying, but um, you know, uh, something that'll just keep it a little soft, even Vaseline on top or the zinc. Uh, would be a good thing and then cover it up with a band-aid uh, and then something over top of that so the band-aid doesn't rub off. The other thing is calluses. People think that calluses are protection of the feet but if you look at the people that run in sandals or the Terra Mary or barefoot runners they have really smooth feet. Um, calluses are from not hitting correctly. So if you rub a callus, it typically is where your foot will rub on a shoe or rub on something because you're not striking the ground or you're rubbing inside a shoe. Um, and you can get blisters underneath the calluses. It's uh, kind of a, a nemesis for me because I'll get those under um, a bad toenail. Uh, and they're very hard to kind of get to because the callus impedes you from being able to stick a needle and drain it. So the best thing you can do is take a little Dremel, um, you know, for a pedicure, have that or a stone and keep your heels and sometimes the big toes and, uh, and sometimes the end of your toes uh, nice and smooth uh, so that uh, you don't get blisters underneath. Uh, look at your shoes while you're, you know, why are you doing it in the first place? Perhaps your gait is such that uh, you can change a little bit to, to make that a little bit better. Um, I used to be a toe, I still am, I guess, to some degree, but when I get tired, that toe uh, kind of uh, curl my toes in my shoes to try to hang on uh, when things I start to get tired, and by curling my toes up, then the toenail kind of, my second toenail pops up against the shoe, 
and ends up friction causing a problem underneath that toenail. So it's real important that I keep my toenails short, keep them filed down so they're not thick to catch on. Because even if they just catch slightly on your sock or your shoe, you're at a big risk of uh, having trauma to the nail bed and or a blister and ultimately um, uh, either losing a toenail, having a black toenail, or having a blister. It's almost a given for anybody that runs uh, long distance that they're going to have trauma to their toes. Uh, there's even a guy, Marshall Ulrich, that had, actually had his toenails removed before he did a race across America because he had so much trouble with his toenails. I don't necessarily recommend that. Um, I certainly lose a fair share of toenails after, after long races, but um, it's pretty manageable if you pay attention during the race. So um, just a, a bit of word of the wise. Um, I'm trying to hope I heat it. I actually have a blister first aid kit packed for the 50 mile out in, um, in the Silver Rush 50. And certainly if I'm considering 100 miles in the future, um, that you know has a kit that I can kind of take care of my feet on the road so to speak and patch things up people tape their feet uh, to try to avoid them you got to watch that the tape comes off it can cause more problems so uh, there's a lot you can do um, but the big three are preventing prolonged wetness of the feet so they shrivel and cause them to, to you know the skin to separate uh, friction and you know the heat if you can air things out a little bit good thing the last thing I'll say about that is I've actually for long for actually all my runs I used to only wear toe socks for races but now I wear them exclusively keeps my toes separated I've not had a blister between my toes since I went to toe socks I do put a little body glide there are some squirrel nut butter at the end of my toes to try to keep that from from um, being punishing to the end of my toes but um, but I do wear the toe socks. Uh, several companies that make, I, I typically wear NNGs, but there's another uh, during the week and exoskin socks uh, for the races because they're so um, probably a little bit better in the moisture wicking thing. The last thing I'll say about socks is thickness. When I first started running, I got the thickest sock thurlors that I could find thinking that my feet will feel better if they have more padding. Not so. The thicker the sock, the hotter they are, the more potential friction. So. Um, don't think thick is better than thin, but um, stay away from the cotton. And different socks fit different feet, um, you know, uh, differently. So find socks that work for you that your shoes don't eat. Um, when the elastic tends to go out of the socks, they tend to fall down and move more as well. So um, watch out for those. The other thing is um, some socks, because they're so tight, keep your toes together. And so if you're prone to have your toes cross over, um, that can make things worse too. So pay attention to all those things and it'll keep you moving and uh, keep you off the couch. So as always, if you'd like to know about how we interact with people and our membership practice, you can go over to drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y and find out uh, what we have to offer. Our nutrition class and Zoom classes are live Zoom, and then they're put up on our members-only website, as well as the recipes to what we cook in class. Uh, tonight, I'm going to go to a grocery store and take a group of our members uh, on a grocery uh, store trip so that we can learn foods, uh, what do you do with certain vegetables, uh, what things to stay away from, label reading, marketing, uh, what, how not to fall into things. So. If you have some interest in that, uh, we can certainly do a lot of uh, things online as well as in person. 
But uh, check out the website. If you have questions, email me at jamie at drdelaney.com. It's J-A-M-I at drdelaney.com. As always, I appreciate you listening. If you like what you hear, go on over to iTunes and give us uh, a nice five-star review. If you don't like, please don't go over. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. Uh, there's also discounts on the website for Mama Says and um, the Aqua Nui um, distillers. Both products I really do like. Um, again, uh, I'll put a little link to the socks that I use. Uh, not that I'm sponsored by them, but I, I believe in promoting things that I think are good companies, including Ground and, Grounds and Hounds Coffee. Um, it's not because, um, like I said, I get a, a kickback from the stuff, uh, but I do think uh, it's good to promote good companies. So have a nice week. Get out and move. Don't forget your anti-chafing protection. Mm -hmm.